Um, all right, so a bit of an impromptu uh, change of plans today. Um, was going to be speaking with Jamie Leverton from Hut 8 Mining, but uh, she had a personal issue she had to attend to, so we're rescheduling that. Uh, and before we get going, I just want to say thank you to the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. Um, they approached me a little while back, asked if uh, they were interested or if I was interested in sponsorship. And uh, I've resisted it a little bit in the past just because, um, you know, I like to actually use the products that uh, I'll be supporting on the show. And I've been playing around with it recently. And uh, it's just a really great uh, addition to my hardware wallet mix. You know, a lot of people are reaching out to me and I'm sure many of you guys listening right now about getting into Bitcoin and buying Bitcoin. And uh, the thing I always say as part of that uh, initial conversation or text messages exchange is, Yes, like this is the way to buy it in whatever jurisdiction you're in, but don't forget that the immediate next step is to take self-custody of it because after all, this is all about freedom and self-sovereignty. And if you don't take that step, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're, not, you're leaving a lot on the table in terms of the value proposition of Bitcoin. And uh, the hardware wall is great. It's uh, got a lot of awesome features. It's fully open source. It's got coin control. It, it connects to your own node. Um, and it's got a really slick, easy to use interface um, without a lot of noise, but all the features that you want in a really um, easy way to use it. And I find it's really great for, you know, someone a bit more experienced as well as someone who's new to the game. So um, thank you to Bitbox02 for the support. If you want to check them out or if you want to pick one up, you can go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. All right, Austin, what's going on, man? What's up? Nothing much. Just just pulled up to our uh, manufacturing facility, man. <laughs> Glad I caught you. Kind of yeah. Alive for so uh, tell me about, you know, you and what you're up to. And because I'm coming into this super green, obviously. So uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me what's going on? Um, so a few years ago, I started a company called Bearbox. And we're building like these mobile mining applications and shipping containers. Two years ago, uh, got onto the GAM team. Great American Mining Team, and I guess technically I'm like our director of engineering and product. Basically means like I build stuff, we design stuff, uh, everything's in-house, and we use those mining containers uh, on these stranded or like otherwise flared natural gas sites in the U.S. And so it's kind of wild, yeah. It's crazy, man. And and like this, um, this aspect of Bitcoin mining or even aspect of Bitcoin as an industry really seems to be picking up a lot of steam and enthusiasm, you know, like it, I think it's broadening a lot of people's perception about what the value of this network actually is right just beyond like a great store of value or a great, you know, form of pristine collateral like this in particular, this industry that you you guys are a part of, I think is causing a lot of people to be like, oh, shit, this, this is probably a lot bigger than I thought it was. Right. Um, yeah. I would say like a lot of people are starting to think about it, like in terms of uh, almost like you're like first first buyer of stranded energy assets, which is there's never been anything like it before. Right. Yeah, it's that's nice. that's so, the heady. That's the heady thing. That's the, <laughs> the overarching theme is like now you can monetize an energy source regardless of where it is. Yeah, hold this hold. I want I want to get into that because that shit blows my <laughs> mind all the time. But so you were saying you 
the, what you did prior to uh, joining GAM was what again? What were you doing there? So uh, I founded a company that was just building um, like Bitcoin mining containerized solutions. And so take a shipping container, cut the walls off, install the filters, the fans, the racks, the power distribution, the networking, and then sell them to whoever wanted to mine and put hardware in them. And uh, irrespective of the power source, right? You just did the, the mining rigs. Just the mining rigs, yeah. So the the twenty foot sea cans, um, we'd get a new one time use one in, basically tear it all the way down, put everything we needed into there besides like the the mining hardware, if you will, the ASICs, and people would buy them and use them whether it was in wind farms, like small scale solar stuff, uh, the natural gas, like that the new natural gas stuff on well pads is totally different than what it was like three or four years ago. That didn't exist, but unbiased towards the source, just cheap electric, like cheap electricity. That was it. Right. And how, how'd you get in? So that's what, like 2017, 18 when you were doing yeah. that? Mm -hmm. So how'd you get into it? Um, I kind of stumbled into it, I guess. Like I've always been a hardware guy. So out of school, I worked for Garmin, the GPS company um, on their mm -hmm. Marine survey team. And literally went around the country and just surveyed like all the lakes and rivers that we could, getting pretty uh, pretty detailed bathymetric data on that. And on those lakes, we'd have like these you know fifty thousand dollar multi beam sonar units that would run into trees in the bottom of the boats, and we we're constantly fixing hardware. And I guess I just kind of grew out of that into more of like a hardware integration guy, and then thought, hey these mobile mining containers, like nobody's really building these or people were building them at the time, but they like, they would never pass inspection with any authority having jurisdiction and like any, any electrical inspector walked in and would just fail them basically immediately. And so started building them, or started designing them, started building them. So I thought there was a need for it. If we were gonna have like this migratory, kind of like migratory mining landscape similar to what they do in China, where they move the miners, depending on the price of electricity. I wanted to be able to do that in the States. So. And presumably you were into Bitcoin prior to this, or did you come into Bitcoin through this kind of engineering aspect? So I, um, I first saw Bitcoin when I was in college. I, I didn't have any money, right? Like 2012. Um, and really didn't start like buying Bitcoin until late 2016, early 2017. And then immediately jumped in the deep end of mining because I thought that that was going to be the most, uh, I guess, where my like my skill set would be most appreciated. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. And so, what led to um, leaving that company that you founded and joining Gam? Um, a lot of stuff. Uh, so, like, I, I talked with Marty about this previously, right? Like, Bearbox, it's hard when you don't have the full stack, right? Like, I could build containers, but Mining is a capital game. It's a total cash game in terms of the miners. Like you talk with the what's miner guys and Bitmain guys, they're like, yeah, sure. Here's what's available. Send us a wire like today or send us a, you know, Bitcoin, like send us Bitcoin today. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to uh, capitalize it as like a sole founder with not a ton of employees. Like I had one guy that was working with me and everybody else was contractors. And so I think the biggest thing was like, I knew that I needed a team um but it was hard to like source like people that you trusted if you will mm -hmm. um and so now with gam just tell me a little bit more about like your specific duties and role and stuff in the company 
So and maybe and maybe for for people that aren't super familiar with GAM, I know we touched on it a little bit already, but like let's uh-huh. let's give them the the spiel so people understand what we're talking about. Yeah, so uh, GAM is it stands for Great American Mining. We uh, we utilize stranded energy assets in the form of natural gas that is flared or vented into the atmosphere on these wellhead or well pad sites, whether that's in North Dakota or Wyoming or Colorado or New Mexico. If you're an oil and gas producer who's flaring on site, like we come in and say, hey, we'll pay you for this. We'll pay you for this gas. We'll consume it or convert it into electricity on site. And we'll mine Bitcoin literally out in the middle of nowhere on a well pad. Um, it's, it's really, it's a crazy concept because we take, we take the actual molecule and we bring the market to it rather than having to put it on a gathering line to a gas processing plant and then push it down, uh, like big transmission pipelines. We literally bring the market to the molecule. It's so wild. And, and so your specific capacity at GAM is to what set all that up? Like you're, you're the guy that is in charge of making sure it all functions or what? Yeah. So um, we have a pretty, we have a small team, uh, about six of us now who design and build the containers in-house. We've got a three acre manufacturing facility down here in Louisiana. And I guess like my role technically is director of product and engineering. So I am just an overlord over every little screw that goes into the containers um, I wrote the code for how all of our backend works, how about like all of our telemetry works for our in the field units. And I just make sure that it all runs, I guess. So, and I, I know like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the implications of, of this. So I know yeah. very little and, and I want to dive into that in a sec, but so you, you have a stranded energy asset, right? <laughs> you, you put like a power, generator on top of that right so it converts it to electricity that's what you plug in the mining farms into and then you do you like you use a mining pool like you're connected to a mining pool or or not how does that work yeah so we use slush pool um specifically it's what we've always used it's what our back end's built for um and in the field units because we're in like bandwidth limited i guess environments right like sometimes you have no cell service, no internet providers, like you're running on satellite or a big cell pole with a directional antenna. Um, it's, it's different. It's very different being out there in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, we, we connect to slush pool um, via, you know, various means. All right, let's just do the implications part now because I'm Jack. So <laughs> what, what do you like, you know, when you're lying in bed at night after a hard day's work, or when you're thinking about all of this stuff. And as we all know, the Bitcoin rabbit hole is like seemingly endless, right? And there's so many sure. different directions you can go. But when you think about this particular aspect of what's going on, like where does your mind wander? What You mentioned something interesting where you said like, we're bringing, uh, you, you said we're bringing what to the hydrocarbon? We're bringing the market to the molecule as opposed to the molecule. To the, yeah. Right. And, and like, you know, I, I heard this somewhere recently and it was an interesting point. And, you know, I, I think there's been a lot of like daydreaming about like a massive mining operation in the middle of our future citadels, right? But yeah. the, point, the point is interesting in that in the past we've, you know, human civilization has had to position itself along 
trade routes, right? Rather that be the mouth, mouths of rivers or roads and such, because they had to make it easy for things to come to them, right? And they right. like for transportation channels, but this seems like it may end up, it's possible that this could kind of flip the, that dynamic where you, you have an energy source and as a result, like it brings everything to it in, yes. in a certain way. You know, I, I, that's poorly articulated, but you, you tell me what you think the implications of all this stuff is. I mean, you know, I think Bitcoin mining on a long enough timeline, it, it centralizes around these high power density energy sources that can be utilized to generate electricity to run the development, right? Run the operation. When that happens, like you end up with these massive developments, I think like on a, on a century long timeline, right? You end up with developments like these citadels around the energy sources, right? regardless of where they are, especially with stuff like Starlink. I mean, as soon as Starlink becomes operational and economically feasible, you can monetize an energy asset wherever it is on the planet. And that's something that's totally different from how we currently do it. Like to monetize, let's say you have a, like a natural gas field out in the middle of nowhere. You can't generate electricity from that and run it on transmission lines because you have, you know, five to 8% line loss there. Same thing with the uh, transmission pipelines. You get the compressor station that eats three to 5% of the gas when it's on there to keep it compressed. And so I think that on a long enough timeline, you get developments that center around, and I mean like full on cities, like full on city sized citadels around these massive remote energy sources that can't be brought to where the current developments are. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a better way of putting it than what I was saying, but, but people go to the energy rather than energy going to the people in, in, in the future maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, you find this energy resource and you plug in miners and not only do you have energy for all the other functions you need energy for in a, in a society, but you also are minting this money that you can trade for anything that you might lack, right? Or that anything you can't produce at the location. Exactly. And so, so like, where, where is this head? I know it's super early days, you know, like you guys are still, I'm sure in, well, actually, before I say where this is headed, how has the last six months uh, changed the nature of your guys's business, right? Because, you know, price was stagnant for a while, right? We were kind of stuck at 10K for a while and coming off, sure. of course, March 2020. So mining probably wasn't <clears throat> all that profitable and there probably wasn't as much excitement around it. And then, mm -hmm. of course, the price rips, there's more excitement around everything. The oil price has been recovering as well. You know, there seems to be a lot of converging narratives that now support this. And it seems like we're seeing like another kind of mining mining boom underway and certainly a lot of interest in the type of mining that you guys are doing because it fits a, a number of different narratives so like what what's the last six months been like in your world oh uh, it's been crazy um <laughs> yeah i think like we've seen a massive amount of interest in mining on site at these well pads or at these processing plants to it fits a couple of narratives, right? It fits the ESG narrative um, because you're no longer venting or having VOCs that escape. You're combusting everything in our gen sets. Uh, but then also your effective uh, gross revenue per MCF, which is a thousand cubic feet or MMBTU, which is a million British thermal units. Um, 
compared to what you normally fetch at the market for this gas, as mining's become so profitable, it's like 15 to 20 X what the normal like net back is for, for that gas unit. It's insane. And is this like a, a temporary window while like, you know, the, while the mining infrastructure and market adjusts to the rapid increase in price, like a lot more capacity is obviously coming online and therefore mining will become less profitable. So is this just like one of those unique periods where, where, you know, for a while mining was growing and price was stagnant and then price shoots up and then mining hasn't adjusted yet. Cause you can mine a Bitcoin for like, what's the cost to mine a Bitcoin today? I honestly don't even know. Yeah. It's probably, is it, is it something I mean, it around 20K? Yeah. It, it's, it, it's entirely dependent on your cost, like well, electricity per kilowatt hour. Right. 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 So you've got some folks in Texas who are utilizing the demand response programs um their cost per kilowatt hour is somewhere in the two two to three cents all in um same thing with the folks up in new york and so they are likely if they're running new gen hardware their cost to create a bitcoin is probably sub 5k i mean shit it's it's really uh it's really economically feasible right now i mean we've got we've got models that show like a seven seven month roi it's it's nuts and so I think that that's, as we see these boom and bust cycles, right? Like mid to late 2017, as we ran from like three to like the 20K peak, we saw mining become really profitable, but there was like a six month lag in the ability to bring the additional infrastructure online. Because it's not only like plugging in mining machines, at scale, it's building substations. It's running your power distribution. There's a lot of moving parts that, that contribute to that I guess that lag period from when price goes up and incentivizes more miners to come online and then when they can actually get them plugged in. Right. And right. so any miners who are already established, you know, prior to six months ago, they're all making hay right now, right? While everyone else is scrambling to get involved. Right. Yeah. If you have miners that aren't plugged in right now, like you're doing everything you can to, to plug them in um, because you don't know, we don't know what the price is going to do in, in the short to medium term. It could continue to go up and then your opportunity cost of that miner sitting on the sideline and not generating hashes is, you know, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse for you. Um, so yeah, if, if you were, if you were mining six months or a year ago and your stuff's still plugged in, you are making hay. And is, is there so much, is there so many people trying to get in? Cause it, you re reference uh, 2017 and obviously we're dealing on different scales now, right? Every time there's a boom and bust cycle, that's the case. And there's, you know, there's bigger and bigger players entering the space with more and more capital behind mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, is there like, is there ASIC supply? Like, is, is that an issue? It sounds like that's an issue that people are facing these days. There, there is ASIC supply. Um, it's just, you don't get the greatest of terms on it. If you buy directly from the manufacturers, you, you can get supply if you have a relationship that's already built. But going in now as a new player, regardless of the amount of capital that you have, if you don't have the relationships built with these manufacturers, it's really, really hard to get miners. Right. And so do they just have to be put on a wait list or what's, what's the play? You're put on a wait list. You sign POs for delivery through like the end of 2022 and hope you have enough cash to kind of like bootstrap the business until then while you're not generating rev. That's pretty much it. And is there, is there activity in the minor 
uh, in the ASIC manufacturing space? Like, is that supply being ramped up by either incumbents or new players? So yes and no. The chip shortage thing is more of like a, you know, what the capacity of the foundry is. Um, I've heard I've heard about some private label stuff that's supposed to be like hitting the market for larger um, capitalized, like better capitalized miners in the US, but I haven't really seen anything like definitive on that. Um, so yeah, the, the supply chain issues are really foundry capacity because we compete for we compete for capacity against every other industry at this point, right? Right. Um, and what's what's your guys' experience been like in terms of demand? Like the word is getting out about what you guys do. The value prop seems like a fairly easy case to make. What's been like demand like in your world? Um, I, I think like everybody wants to realize like increased gross revs from their gas, right? Because natural gas has been long thought of as a byproduct of production. That's why they call it associated gas. Like oil producers just want to sell barrels of crude. And now all of a sudden they have a mechanism that can provide liquidity for what was previously considered a byproduct and almost a, it's most of the time a red line item. So the demand is through the charts. I mean, it's like, I mean, Marty can tell you, it's like his inbox just fills up every single day with people trying to sell his gas. It's insane. Um, and so at this point, it's just about finding the right partners. But you guys are a team, you said of six people, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> like, like where's the scale up if there's all this demand? Like what's, what's the, what's the, what's holding you guys back? Is it supply of ASICs or is it something else? Like, um, so we've, we've got a significant number of containers in production right now. Um, I mean, like I, I sit here and I'm looking out at them, like on our manufacturing floor, uh, think there's no real issue to scale because we have we have contractors right that do the fabrication work that come in and do the electrical work that's supervised mostly by me um and so we have six like core employees in the company it's like me marty reed isaac wes and then tom and todd and then hank who's our like vp of finance um Majority though is like all contracted work through welders, fabricators, electrical um, assistants, like those type of guys. So no scale issues. Uh, container pricing has gone up. <laughs> I, I don't think it's from the whole evergreen uh, thing <laughs> in the Suez, but container pricing has gone up. Um, price of copper has gone up. Like we've seen like a 35 to 40% increase in both of those over the last four to five months. And so... That's my only issue right now is just getting raw materials. How do commodity, you know, because commodity prices, one of the driving factors in, in that is inflation, right? And I think we've seen a lot of that over the last year, you know, a shocking amount in some categories. How does that influence how your like financials work out for, for the biz? So the parking spots, the infrastructure is the cheapest part, right? like to build a container, um, to put all the distribution in it, to do everything we need to, to be ready for an ASIC is like, I don't know, a sixth or a seventh of the total cost of a unit in the generation. And so at, at scale, the raw materials cost increase doesn't really, it's more like a drop in a bigger bucket. Um, of course, I don't, I don't wanna pay 40% more for all of my electrical copper. I don't wanna pay 40% more for containers. Um, 
but I mean, that's just what happens when you have more money chasing like a scarce amount of raw materials. So, yeah. Um, how do you got like, there, there seems to be a lot of like a coming wave of hype around this type of mining, right? Like, and let's just oversimplify. It fits the green narrative and it's a, you know, it's a, a profitable business, let's say, right? It just, it's, it's one of those feel good sort of narratives and it seems to be attracting a lot of attention. Um, is like, is there a way to establish a moat around what you guys do as a company in this industry? Like, what are the competitive advantages that keep, you know, that allow the smaller guys to part to compete when, you know, massive capital comes in and, and tries to do something similar? Yeah. So, um, I would say the, the competitive advantages are the, the lessons learned and experiences that you get in running in a really adverse operating environment. So like right. I've stood stuff up, I've, I've stood up mining operations on grid. It's totally different. Your electricity is being generated and transmitted and delivered to you 100% of the time or 99% of the time. On a well, you've got like, you know, well downtime issues. You've got generator downtime issues. You've got all of these, uh, and, and also like operating in a container, you have a, you know, eight foot by 20 foot footprint to make everything work. And so I think operationally, having the data to back up the fact that you have great uptime compared to other conventional uses, like uh, let's say your NGL units, your liquids units, right? That drop liquids out on site um, for these oil and gas companies. They've got like a 40% uptime. Our containers run 96, 97% of the time. The only downtime we see is like generator oil changes or if the well like starts having some issues, that's it. And so I think the competitive advantage and the biggest moat is we have the data to back up um, all of our operations and that history. Right. And the oil field talks. Right. And how how do how does the equipment fare in like when it's installed like is there a lot of maintenance and upkeep required or how resilient is it to the like the natural environment that it's operating in and stuff yeah so it's a little bit different um in the containers you've got to do some you've got to do some balancing of your like environmental variables to make sure that you stay within I guess what the acceptable range of that of that ASIC is, right? Like what's minor tells you the power supplies are good to like 23 degrees Fahrenheit. And then like, I think 104 is their top range. And so maintaining an environment that's good for that, um, not having any like condensating humidity is also important, but they run fine. There's no, there's no like increased, uh, increased maintenance costs with them. You just have to make sure that you change your big filters, like your big air filters that come into the container. That's it. Right. Uh, you mentioned that oil field talks, and I know you're maybe more on the technical side of things, but I'm, you know, small team, I'm sure team, I'm sure you're privy to, uh, I'm, I'm sure you all discuss this, but like, what is the response to like the pitch, whether you guys deliver it directly or whether, you know, people hear about it and come to you guys, like, like what is a response to oil field operators or, or businesses in that uh, industry that realize that this is now a potential revenue stream or an offset of some kind? Like, like what, what's the response from them? Cause I, yeah. like, I feel like, like if you really knew what it was, what was going on, like if, if I was in their shoes, I'd be like, Holy fuck, you know, like, 
let's do it immediately. But I, I'm probably not considering a lot of variables from their perspective. So what's it been like the sales process, I guess, is, is what I'm asking. So from a high level, because I'm not really involved in the details of the sales process, but from a high level, like when, when we go out there and we commission units, the first thing, one of the first things that we do is we walk the oil and gas, like upstream producer, we walk that site PM through the containers before it starts running, after it's running. And then almost immediately their corporate office will send us an email. Hey, these are awesome. How many more of these can we get up? Like here's more sites where we have gas that's available that we think isn't dedicated or committed. And they, they understand that the economics makes sense for us and the economics makes sense for them. Um, and they, they don't want, I guess they don't want the liability of the gas anymore. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. Nobody does, especially with the current administration in the States. As, as far as you know, do they even care that it's Bitcoin? Or are they just like, whatever the fuck's happening in that data, that in that cargo container, I don't care if you're telling me these are the numbers it's going to spit out, go for it. Yeah, they, they really don't. Um, what they care most about is that their flare goes from being eight feet tall to barely making it out of the stack. Um, and, I, you know, we've got some we've got some other things that we're doing with the data to, like, to kind of quantify, I guess, that carbon, uh, not carbon offset, but the total amount of gas that we're combusting and converting in electricity. We've got some data to back up some of those those claims as well. And it it helps them when they have board meetings to kind of defend what we're doing on site if anything ever comes up uh, regarding right. the and, okay. and just so I'm clear, because it's not really clear in my mind right now, typically you have uh, an oil well that flares natural gas. Is that right? Yep. And that emits CO2 into the environment? It does. When you combust, uh, when you combust methane, um, CH4, it does create uh, CO2, a little bit of water. Um, there's also some other VOCs like volatile organic compounds that go through that flare. Um, CH4 as methane stands is like orders of magnitude, uh, uh, more potential warming effect as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. Which is and why so, they burn it, right? Because it's better to burn it. Which is why they burn it. And But like a report came out the other day, like in the Permian down in Texas, you've got like hundreds of sites that don't even have lit flares. They're just venting the CH4 into the atmosphere. Right. So that's, like, that's really bad. Um, but Texas, Texas cares about money, right? The railroad commission cares about money, um, but they probably should light those flares. This is why they say cow farts are more hazardous than like uh, burned fuel, right? Because sure. it's, it's the methane that hasn't been burned. But my, my, my question is, is like, so the, let's say the out, Put of burning is, is CO2 and some VOCs and, and some water. When you put it through a, a gen set or like when you create electricity out of it and it put, gets pushed through these miners, like I can understand like the miners create heat, right? So that's definitely one of the outputs mm -hmm. and energy, but like what happens to it, the other, like, is there any negative environmental impact of, you know, diverting that that methane, let's say, or that energy through miners? Like what are the outputs of, of the mining uh, process as you guys have established it? So as it leaves- Other than beautiful Bitcoin, of course. Yeah, of course, Bitcoin, yeah. Um, <laughs> as, as it leaves the flare stack, 
uh, and kind of gets diverted to the fuel train where the generators are. The generators combust that gas. The output is CO2. The generators that we use are quad J EPA certified with oversized catalytic converters. And so we know for a fact that we're combusting like 99.9% .9 of everything that's coming from that flare to our gen sets. Whereas like in high wind conditions, some of the flares that are in the Permian, the Bakken, other like these other fields, the flare blows sideways, the pressure coming up the flare is like allowing methane to quote unquote leak into the atmosphere. And so we take it in the gen set, we burn 99.9% .9 of it to generate electricity. And then the miners take that electricity and they create Bitcoin from hashes and heat. That's it. So is, and I'm only asking, so I understand this properly. I'm, this is not like a green crusade or anything, but like, is the amount of CO2 created from the generator versus the flare roughly equal? Yes. So yeah. the benefit to the comp, like, because I've heard discussions about like maybe this, there being a carbon credit element for the oil companies uh, around this, but they're not, they're not changing their carbon footprint at all by doing this. Are they, maybe they're just generating revenue to buy more carbon credits or offset or something like that. Is yeah, that how what, it works? What they're really doing is they are, they're quantifying a, a total, I guess, like what we refer to it as the, the heating potential of those escaped VOCs and methane from that flare. So rather than like go through the flare and maybe some of it escapes, like one molecule of methane, I think it's like 24 or 25 times the like global warming heat potential of a single molecule of CO2. And so what they're saying is, hey, we know we're not having any CH4 escape at this point. Right. We're running it through generators. They're combusting 99.999% of it or whatever it ends up being. And then that, that heating potential of the escaped ones that previously they can't quantify, they don't know what the uh, DRE of the flare stack is. We know what the generators do though. Right. And so that's, yeah, that's what I would say. It's, it's about equal, but they don't have any of the, any of the risk of the CH4 escaping anymore. Right. And I guess like the other obvious thing is that if you flare CO2, you're emitting the same CO2 and you're just wasting it versus if you emit the same CO2, but you turn it into the best form of money the world has ever seen and all the different right. things that means. I mean, you're obviously recycling it into something almost infinitely more useful versus no, like no use at all. Correct. And, you know, when we talk about from the environmental perspective of like reusing or re recycling energy or getting more out of the energy mm -hmm. that you use or, or the emission, the, you know, like, let's say the, uh, the, the byproducts of, of energy use and, is, is almost impossible to think of a better byproduct of energy use. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the way that we look at it, right? Like you're getting you're getting economic potential from something that was previously like wasted or underutilized entirely. Um, and it's not only economic potential, but it's the best economic potential you could possibly <laughs> get, right? Yeah. Um, is there any uh, desire either from client side, like the companies you're working with, or the economics on your guy's side to use that power to be like mine something else, be another form of a data center. Like is, is Bitcoin, 
the most economic use of that energy if you're going to have like mining uh, rig or uh, data centers plugged in there? Yeah, I think um, right now it definitely is. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, right now, there's there's nothing that comes close to it. I I don't think um, I don't think the infrastructure is in place at least at this point in time to have uh, to have like a data center on site or even like any of your cloud compute, especially with like reliability issues. If you have a bad well operator, if you have a bad gen set that throws you down, um, those require really like n plus one setups for your like electricity generation which they aren't economically feasible for bitcoin mining and for data centers maybe they are but we haven't seen any of them at scale right where do you see you know as this industry develops and evolves like they'll obviously kind of disperse into specialty components of this or like you know everyone will focus in on a niche and maybe it'll become a, a stack within each individual company but like just the limited experience that you guys have thus far and working in in oil field and with with uh, energy companies like where do you see this head other than scaling up and and like taking on more clients and expanding where do you see this industry going in the next like five years so I think we'll end up with like larger scale deployments on transmission lines, like transmission pipelines. So the difference between wellhead, wellhead quality gas and pipeline quality gas is you've got, uh, it's just the heat content per thousand cubic foot, right? Like say, I mean, for us, I think the gas that we take on site is like 1500 BTU scuff which changes the conversion, it changes the conversion efficiency profile of the generators entirely from like if we were using pipeline quality gas, because it's cleaner, you don't have a scrubber, like they're built purpose driven, almost like an ASIC for generators. Um, so I would say larger deployments on cleaner gas, um, that's probably what ends up, what ends up happening, just it's going to take some time. Yeah. You, you mentioned Starlink before, you know, like when the world is connected to the internet effectively, like you can get internet access anywhere. Mm. Like, doesn't it seem like there's just going to be like a hunt for energy all over the world? Like, like, cause you know, obviously we've been constrained thus far by our ability to access and then transmit whatever energy is found. Right. So like people probably weren't even exploring places where it was just, it didn't matter if there was massive energy resources cause you could, maybe never really get it to market like sure. maybe you know and and so how many resources have been neglected <clears throat> or just totally ignored uh because of that and like once people realize like holy shit you know we have these mobile mi uh, mining units right. and we have you know skynet basically and right. we put those two <laughs> things <laughs> we put those two things together and if we find fucking energy somewhere in the world, this can be economical. Like, I feel like there's going to be people scouring the globe for energy. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> correct. I, I, like this is, and this is kind of the second order effect of, of what Bitcoin mining does. Like in like this big high level, like clouds type thinking as, as we start to, I guess, like cover the planet in mining operations, seeking the lowest cost energy source that can generate electricity for the operation. Um, I think like we, what we talked about earlier, you get these like developments where 
you get almost citadels around these energy sources because a cheap energy source is a cheap energy source. And then once all of those are, I guess you could call exhausted, then the next thing is like the energy race for conversion efficiency. So right now you've got you know, maximum theoretical conversion of a wind turbine with Betts's law is like 59.3%. They don't get anywhere near that though because they get a lot of heat lost in the gearings. Um, some of your natural gas combined cycle plants have like in the 60% conversion efficiency range. Uh, but that's the next big frontier is how do we get, now that we've exhausted all the cheap energy sources, how do we get more out of them? How do we squeeze blood from these stems? And that's the investment in, you know, generation technology that just increases the efficiency, the conversion efficiency of the technology of that actual generator. Right. Because, you know, in that line of thinking, it doesn't really matter, or in the future, it may not matter what the energy source is, right? Like maybe you have you know, an oil well, or maybe you have a lot of sunlight, or maybe you have a hydro dam, or maybe sure. you have, so what, what's the, do you know much about the difference right now? Because, you know, different miners might take different approaches or integrate, you know, a variety of approaches, but like, you know, a place with a ton of sunlight using solar panels versus, you know, the approach that you guys are using with natural gas, like, what are the economic differences in those two approaches as it stands right now? So I think like a place with a ton of sunlight and I, I really only know the US markets. Um, I don't really know any of the overseas stuff uh, just cause it's not what I've kind of had experience in. Um, but places with a ton of sunlight, just like with a ton of wind in the US have had these like production tax credits and investment tax credits for the past, I don't know, 12, 16 years, something like that where they've been incentivized to build these things and they've been subsidized to do so. And so you get, uh, you get these large solar developments or large wind developments that are generating electricity cheaply. I mean, you look in the wholesale markets in Texas, like you've got wind turbines sometimes that are selling into the wholesale at like less than $20 a megawatt hour. I mean, oftentimes, sometimes it's less than 10, sometimes it's negative depending on those grid conditions. And so, I look at it more in terms of power density, especially because of the uh, kind of like the load load intensity of Bitcoin mining operations. Because I mean, look, like we fit 700 kilowatts of 24/7 continuous load in a 20 foot container. It's it's really hard to like stand up capacity for that on on renewables, right? To where you have reliability that makes sense within your economic modeling for the operation, and so. I think that we'll see continued development of all of the energy sources. I think we'll probably see continued subsidization of the renewable sources driven by the narrative of whatever administrations in the White House, in, mm -hmm. in the States at least. Um, but for the most part, I think it's about power density right. of the actual energy flux. Yeah. How does the, you know, speaking about the policies that may come down the pike, um, and I'm, but you know, I'm totally against this level of government intervention, but carbon tax, you know, is something I think in Canada, they just, they passed it like two days ago or something, but how does that change the economics of, of what you guys do? Is that a, is that a negative or a positive? Um, it depends. I mean, it depends on whatever jurisdiction it occurs in, right? Like federally, a carbon tax is going to be bad for every single industrial user uh, at the state level. We really haven't seen 
like many things at the state level because the states that we operate in have a large part of their tax base that's built upon oil and gas, like the industry within the state. Yeah. So Wyoming is a great example, right? Like Wyoming has really lax tax laws because the oil and gas industry pays like the taxes for basically everybody in the state. Um, and so I think like carbon credits, um, I've got a friend who's done some work on them. I haven't, I haven't really delved much into them, but I, I don't, I don't imagine it would be good for anybody. Yeah. And I, I agree. And like, I think it's the stupidest thing ever. And I, you know, yeah, I just think the, uh, the narrative around, uh, I guess carbon and, you know, the, the, the kind of poo-pooing of oil and gas is, uh, at the very least uninformed and possibly entirely misguided. But, you know, the reason why I bring it up is because like that may put extra financial strain on energy producers sure. and that may require them to be more active in finding alternative revenue streams, which you guys provide, you know, right. like, cause I assume some oil and gas producers, I mean, it, as far as I know, it's been a profitable business for a long time and maybe mm -hmm. there's a complacency or maybe there's like kind of a, uh, yeah, like not a very um, progressive is the wrong word, but like not a very you know, particular mindset that may be resistant to like a certain type of innovation or going outside of their own sandbox, let's say. Sure. And, you know, to have policy come in that's restrictive in that way and ultimately detrimental to them and the industry. But as far as you guys are concerned, may generate interest in, in finding ways to keep driving revenue when it's been uh, impaired by something like the carbon tax. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's absolutely correct. They have the oil and gas industry has boom and bust cycles, just like the Bitcoin mining industry does. Um, like last year, we saw oil futures go negative in the United States, um, and like even right now, we don't see a ton of like drilling schedules and workover rigs in the fields that we work in, because people are still like kind of kind of on the back end of that bust cycle. They're trying to find more ways to increase their net back per barrel of oil, which is just their, their net revenue per barrel of oil that they produce and increase the efficiency of their operations. And so somebody like us falls perfectly in that because we say, hey, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, you've got this byproduct you're not making any money off of. Sometimes it's even costing you money. We'll take it, we'll generate, you know, almost as much as you would get for the barrel of oil for it. And then maybe we'll give you a little rip of the Bitcoin, who knows? <laughs> right that's that's the end goal right like we're trying to orange pill oil and gas companies so that they just they cover the fields with this we don't want flares we want to take all of that gas and convert it into electricity yeah that's it and that, that i mean if you if you were to fast forward the clock like 20 years and i'm like going a bit galaxy brain here but like it's not hard to imagine that the hunt for energy could be so extreme that like even you know and and maybe mining equipment and uh, all that kind of stuff becomes efficient enough to permit like you know hobby hobby energy hunters right you know how you see people like you know searching for like shit on the beach now with their their uh, <laughs> metal, their detectors, metal detectors and stuff, stuff. Yeah. like there's hobby energy finders like whether it's I don't know, in your fucking house and your chimney of your wood burning like a uh, fireplace or just a sure. place where there's, there's, there's waste energy, like finding a way to actually capture that. It seems like it's possible that this industry might 
I don't know, kickstart like a cottage industry like that. Yeah. So I think you're not seeing it. (laughs) No, I I see it. Um, We've, we've looked at, and they have people who've done this before, right? Where they utilize the waste heat of the Bitcoin miners to like heat their house. Um, Make salt. I know there's a company out there that's doing that. Right. Uh, you know, who's the guy in North Carolina? Uh, he's one of the Morgan Creek Ventures partners, uh, oh, Jason Williams, who was yeah, like, yeah. he was like recycling tires and use, like using the heat from that to like generate electricity mine Bitcoin or something crazy like that. Right. So I think these like hobbyist um, energy hunters, if you will, they're going to get really creative. They're going to start utilizing this low grade heat that is really a byproduct of the mining process to do things like heat a greenhouse or heat their homes or like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a natural progression. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned red, uh, orange pilling um, oil and gas producers, which you know, is the Lord's work, obviously. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, Marty's talked about this a bunch before in how, again, like fast forwarding and just speculating about how it almost seems like a logical progression as well that um, energy companies producing an energy-based money would it would uh, would become would have an increasingly prominent place in the money industry landscape, i.e., banking of whatever manifestation that takes in the future. You know, because and and as the infrastructure is built out around that, and and a very maybe rudimentary step along that path that we're seeing now is. The, the narrative, like, and this may be several years ago now, because I know this has been happening for a number of years, but miners used to sell Bitcoin to pay their OPEX, right? Right. And now because the, the, the financial landscape of Bitcoin has matured some, mm-hmm. there are tools available to them to allow them not to have to sell their Bitcoin. Sure. Uh, and so they can hodl and they can accrue the benefit of doing so. And they can continue paying for their operations, whether it's through loans or whatever. And so as, as that develops and, you know, you have these energy companies and these miners who are actually producing the money, it's a, it, doesn't, it seems like a trivial step for them to build or adopt the infrastructure for putting financial services, let's say, on top of that. You know, mm-hmm. being that the, the, you know that they are the the entry point of the money into the system. So, like, uh, it, it is. You know, what do you think about that? What do you think about Marty's kind of uh, assertion that energy producers become the banks of the future? Well, you know, Marty and I have been talking about this for years, right? So, a lot of his assertions are kind of like conversations that we've had in the background. Um, I think that. Uh, energy you're trying, to, you're trying to say they're your assertions and he and no, 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 they're, from not mine. they're not mine <laughs> marty and i have talked about this at length uh but I, I think that ultimately it moves to like this vertically integrated model where you have a, a company if you will that owns and operates generation assets and that company will start to mine bitcoin with their own generation assets right now though there's not a company on earth that's technically competent enough to stand up the financial services on top of that stack as well. I mean, hell, these, like a lot of these energy folks, they, they don't even know what Bitcoin mining is, not even like step one. And so there's a lot of education. There's a lot of investment. 
there's a lot of experience that needs to occur internally for them to get from point A where they are now to point Z where they fully integrated those financial services on top because they are the only liquidity provider. Yeah. Mining is the only way to create new Bitcoin. Unless you're going to hypo like rehypothecate it, which yeah, that's a whole whole other argument. So yeah, but I I think you, we can see like the very beginnings of that, and it's not perfect analogy because but something like Foundry, right, where they're a pool, and then now they're offering financial services to miners for the very you know to allow them to hodl or gain interest or whatever it may be, and sure. like you can think whatever you want about any of those practices, but the point is is that there's an integration that seems to be coming together between the producers of the liquidity, like, right, the producers of the Bitcoin and access to financial services. And it, it seems like in the future, those two will be, whether through acquisition, innovation, whatever, like those two will become a more closely knit relationship. They, they should. I mean, that's, that's where the incentive is, right? Because the efficiencies lost between, you know, the generator and the miner and the financial services layer uh, brought together in M&A would make perfect sense. Um, right now, it's it's there's a there's a vast sea between the two though. People like Foundry, like Foundry's leading cutting edge on that, right? They're standing up the Foundry USA pool. Um, they've got the lending services. They've got the capital services for the miners. They're basically financing all this stuff for folks at term. Um, and so there's not a not a ton of companies doing that right now. And traditional financing is is hard to find for miners because number one. The banking industry doesn't like Bitcoin. Number two, they don't understand the mining, uh, like the the entire, I guess, stack of how mining works. And so I think companies like Foundry are going to have a significant, significant moat that they create as this first mover if they can execute. Yeah. Yeah. Barry Silver, it's going to be a kajillionaire. <laughs> he's got his, he's got his fingers in everything. He does. Um, yeah. Because I think Foundry is Digital Currency Group, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. Um, what? So just back to all the way back to GAM for a second. It the deployment of your um, data centers, uh, or like, are they owned by GAM, and you you have purchase agreements for the natural gas with all your partners, or are there other ways that the relationship is set up? Like they buy everything and you just service it or something so we own all of them as of right now um every box every miner is proprietarily owned by gam and we prop mine with all of our own stuff we've looked at a couple of different agreements um for these oil and gas companies to you know have skin in the game and kind of reap a larger larger reward than just selling us the gas and taking a small rip like if they want to put up capital for miners, absolutely go ahead. They're still not really comfortable with it though. A lot of folks aren't. Right. And so I think, I think we'll get there like really, really shortly. Um, but right now, everything that we run is ours. So basically the pitch is from your guys' perspective, we'll take all the risk. We'll do all the legwork. You know, yeah. we'll do everything. We're just going to buy some gas from you on your property. Yeah. You put this stuff on your property. Yep. Yeah. Do people ever say no to that proposition? And if so, um, I'm sure they do, but if so, why? Yeah, so I wouldn't say they say no. I'd say that they they propose terms that are disagreeable, 
right? Because we know what the gas is worth. If it's not tied into a gathering line, it's basically worth nothing. So we'll come in and say, hey, we'll pay you, you know, X amount per MCF. Um, what's a, what's, sorry, what's, what's a gathering line? A uh, gathering line is like for, for a non-stranded energy asset. So like an oil and gas well pad that's tied into a gathering line that goes into like a, um, like a central gathering station, if you will. So they'll take like 10 or 15 or 20 well pads and tie them all to a single gathering station. So and that's where that you get your gas. Station. Right. Okay. And so we go to the well pads that aren't tied in because they, you know, either it's economically un, like infeasible to run those gathering lines or like the midstream company just doesn't come in and do it. We say, hey, we'll buy the gas from you. You're not making anything from it right now. Here's what works in our model. You know, do you want to take it or do you want to not? And then what are the terms? Like, what's the term length for this purchase? It's like a gas purchase agreement or like an offtake agreement. And then, so when they're not, when the terms are disagreeable, what, how, how what are they like? So we stood up a, a gas to hash calculator on the game.ai website that basically shows you what the gross revenue is per MCF for that gas if you were mining Bitcoin with it. And some of so the they producers, see that and they don't they they want a piece. <laughs> yeah, some of the producers have gotten savvy, right? And they'll like pull that up before we start talking to them. And they're like, well, you know, we know that you're making this. And they're like, yeah, but this is the gross. We have all the miners, we have the infrastructure, we have XYZ. Um, and so I guess the just like disagreeable terms would be them looking at the calculator and not understanding that there's a lot that goes into that, like from the capital side. And then wanting more for the gas than what it's actually worth, like a mile down the road, if we went to somebody else. And they can't get anything for it anyways, most of the time though, right? Yeah. So most of the time they don't get paid for it. Like it's $0 revenue. And so not only that, bastards. right. And so like <laughs> in, in North Dakota, they have, uh, they have like a, uh, aggregate portfolio production limit. So there's an IP period, like initial, like basically when you drill a new well, you've got a period of which the state doesn't recognize any of the flared gas um, into your aggregate production. After that period's over, you can only, I think you can only flare like 17% of your aggregate gas production. After that, you, you can't do anything with it. Like you either have to tie it in, but you can't, you can't burn it. And so we'll go to those folks and we'll be like, look, this period's almost over. You're not going to get anything for the gas. You've got at least six to 12 months before midstream company ties in. We'll buy you buy the gas from you for X. Make sure you can pay the royalty owner. Um, and that's it. And as far as that regulation you're just referencing about uh, 17%, it can only flare 70% of the gas, 17% of the gas. If they work with you guys does it not count towards their like flaring quota or does it still technically that is a that's like a contract in custody um term i think it depends um most of the time they don't want custody of it they don't want the liability of burning the gas um and so i think how the contracts are termed and i'm i don't touch the contract side right i hear this in our slack channels um i think we take custody of it and it's like off their books entirely, which makes sense. Do you guys have like secondary revenue streams for anything that's going on? Like, do you sell carbon credits? Do you like, uh, I don't no. know, lend out your Bitcoin or anything like that? Like, no, 
-hmm. You just make Bitcoin and hodl. Yeah, pretty much. It's amazing. Pretty much. <laughs> we, I mean, we've looked at a couple like, uh, I guess, like secondary um, revenue streams on site, but nothing was you know, technically feasible for us to do at that time. And like, we're, we're primarily focused on vertically integrating as much as we can into the stack. That's why we manufacture our own boxes, right? Like, we're, we're focused on doing the things we need to, to scale massive amounts of production. And just us for the time being. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not super keen on, I mean, I don't need to go to Canada. Steve Barber's up there. He's got it locked down, right? Like Steve can put a hash hut on every single stranded well up there. And like, I, I never have to operate up there. We can, but I think, that's his playground. We're going to let him do his thing. Um, we've had a couple of proposals come in from Mexico for like big gas deployments. I'm just not a huge fan of like personal private property laws uh, in Mexico. Like, I don't know how that would be enforced. Like, I don't want to show up there one day and then the containers are no longer mine. Right. right. Um, and so, yeah, just the U.S. For right now. Um, just a few more, but on, uh, on like, um, what are they called? Like ocean uh, drilling rigs. Offshore platforms. Offshore platforms. Thank you. Um, is there a possibility of working a similar thing on, on those? Because they have the same issue, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they do have a similar issue. Um, so when I got out of school, I worked in the Gulf of Mexico. Before I went to Garmin, I worked in the Gulf on a production platform for about a year. Cool. Uh, um, there's not a ton of space. So like your onshore well pads, like all your onshore production, you might have a well pad that's 150 yards, like long as it is wide. You can always expand like and move your generators and your containers, whatever the well pad, like the actual wellhead setback distance is. Offshore, you can't, like it's a platform. It might be, it might be 150 feet by 150 feet and they utilize a lot of that. And so I think offshore, you would have to, you'd have to have like barge, almost like barge mounted mining operations that tie off the platforms. Yeah. The cost would probably go up dramatically. Oh, substantially. <laughs> yeah. it, it just, it doesn't make sense. Right? Like Bitcoin miners at the end of the day, like you're just looking for your lowest effective cost per megawatt hour. That's it. Yeah. Um, last thing I want to ask you is just with regards to, you know, the, this has been a, something that's been talked about for ages in the space, but just the, the decentralization of mining power and capacity, right? Mm -hmm. For all the reasons we know that that is probably beneficial. Um, whether it's like criticism of being overly centralized in a place like China or just, you know, if there was ever a state attack and having, you know, the mining capacity easily identifiable and co-optable, that, that sort of thing. How much... I mean, was that at all an incentive in getting into this business? And, and what do you see as the, the benefits of having, you know, like with seemingly with what the work you guys are doing and other people in the space with each passing day, the, you know, the, the mining capacity of the network being increasingly decentralized? I mean, it wasn't really like an incentive for me or like for the GAM team to get into the business. I mean, like, sure, we want to bring as much hash rate as we can, 
to, uh, to North American soil. That's like one of our overarching missions. Uh, but at the same time, the decentralization of every single stack in the mining space and in the industry is, first of all, it's really hard to quantify. Like nobody really knows exactly how much hash power is in China and Russia and Iran and Venezuela and the United States and Canada. Nobody really knows. They're all- Mike, Mike Green knows, I think. I think Mike, Mike Green has figured that out. He seems yeah, pretty maybe. confident. <laughs> He's very confident that it's, it's mostly used for like skirting OFAC sanctions, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so like, obviously we want it to be as decentralized as possible. And that's part of the, I guess, resiliency narrative that Marty and I have talked about and we kind of co-wrote a piece on, um, especially for oil and gas producers. But for the network to be as resilient as possible in the face of like, you know, nation state actors coming after it, it's gotta be decentralized. We have to have like chip fab and manufacturing in the United States um, or other jurisdictions besides like, really it's just like all Asia at this point. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's a lot of work to be done still. Um, one more that just came to my mind was as these operations get bigger and they avail of greater economies of scale and, you know, these big massive operations become more efficient. Like, do you foresee a, a possibility where like, I guess part of your moat is the fact that you're able to access cheap energy by virtue of the fact that it was going to be waste. And so the partners that you work with give you low prices on the energy. And I like industry wide, is there a, is there a trend or is it emer like, are the developments such that like, there's a, a, a an economic trend toward like a, a particular type of mining, like these massive, gigantic, hugely efficient uh, centers versus these like much smaller dis distributed, but uh, cost-effective miners that use waste gas or whatever. Like, do you, do you see any trends emerging in that? Like in which way they're all going? So, I think that everybody kind of talks their book here, right? Like we build mobile mining solutions. Right. I'm always going to tell you that mobile mining solutions are the way to go from a leverage perspective. You know, I was, I watched as the um, Wenatchee PUD raised the gigawatt rates unilaterally for that deployment up in Washington state from 2.8 cents to nine cents per kilowatt hour because they were making a lot of money mining Bitcoin. I watched- Was that, was that the power provider? That was, their, that was their power provider, yep. And they I raised watched, the, the cost from two to nine? 2.8 cents to nine cents. Unilaterally, a board of like 10 people voted on it, boom. Overnight, your, your, your entire operation it can't move, it's not mobile, and now it's not economically feasible. Holy the shit. same thing happened with Hydro-Quebec like two or three years ago. They incentivized a bunch of miners to come in, a bunch of miners came in and they raised the rates to like 15 cents a kilowatt hour CAD, which is, it's insane, right? And that's why like Michael Saylor the other day said, the most important thing is Bitcoin, the asset. The second most important thing is these mobile mining solutions because I have all the leverage in the world. If an oil and gas providers at the end of whatever our initial term length says, hey, all of a sudden, you know, we know you guys are making money hand over fist. We want to start charging $3 or $4 in MCF. 
And I say, okay, it'll take me two days to decommission this unit and I'll go find somebody down the road who will charge me a lot less. And so just from a leverage perspective, that is the most important thing a miner can do. But you've got guys who do the large scale deployments who think they're gonna have like this almost sort of like a regulatory capture within that jurisdiction where they're too big to fail, right? Like a one gig of, like a, a total gigawatt mining operation. They'll never raise the rates on us. Yeah, but they still could. And, and like signing 10 year agreements on power doesn't mitigate that kind of shit. So we, yeah, we talked about this on Twitter, like two weeks ago, you can sign, like, say you sign a 10 year PPA or POA to underwrite like a generation asset. And then we see inflation come down the pipe and what their LCOE for that asset was, was three and a half cents. And you're paying them, you know, three and a half cents on a 10 year PPA. And then all of a sudden, their cost for components goes up, their cost of salaries goes up, their cost of everything increases with that inflation effect. They can't sell you power at three and a half cents on that PPA anymore. And you as a mining operator can't operate their generation equipment. And so I think the long-term PPAs are gonna be really hard to enforce like, and not, not be renegotiated especially if we see significant inflation and in, like the underlying economics of these generation asset owners. Right. That makes sense. Um, is there something that we haven't touched on that we should, or that you want to something that you're super jazzed about lately or. I'm, I am super jazzed about oil and gas operators having, and we had a call with one uh, like last week in Wyoming. Right. And this is the most jazzed I am about this. They are a dry gas producer in Wyoming, which means they don't, they have gas wells that only produce gas. They don't produce oil, but that means they're entirely dependent upon the natural gas markets and whatever that, that hub pricing they get for it is once they bring it to gathering lines and once it get, it gets pushed to like, let's call it city gate pricing or Henry Hill pricing. Those folks, I was like, Hey, have you ever thought about like maybe hedging your aggregate production with 90% selling into like these, I guess, you know, natural gas, like, like, like the traditional offtakes and then hedging the natural gas markets with 10% of your entire production, just mining Bitcoin. Because those markets are uncorrelated. It doesn't matter if my, you know, dollar per MCF or dollar per MMBTU tanks for the gas, because I've got 10% of my entire portfolio that's only dedicated and committed to mining Bitcoin. And so I think that's the real orange pill that's gonna happen is like being able to hedge out some of this risk in your, I guess your main uh, main revenue stream. You basically just described what we had been talking about for years or, or speculating about, which was putting 1%, 5%, 10% Bitcoin on your corporate balance sheet as a hedge, as an uncorrelated whatever to either your treasury or your operations. Right. And then we had Sailor come in, obviously, and just, you know, throw down the hammer and, and go basically 100%. You know, sure. I wonder, I wonder if, if that ball gets rolling in what you were just describing, you know, people take that 10%, but then they see some gains and they see the effect of it and they go, holy shit, maybe it should be more than 10%. Maybe it should be 20%. Maybe. And of course, it entirely depends on the, the, the natural gas markets, which is your point. But yeah, that'll be an interesting one to see play out. 
And that was like a, a, a very big producer. Is that what you said to set that up? It was, it was a big Wyoming producer. Yeah. And it's just like those folks, again, they're not, Bitcoin is alien to them. Right. But you were on, were you on a call with them? Is that what you said? I was on a call with them. Yeah. So what, what was the response to, you know, this alien language you were speaking? I told them about the hedge, like how I would hedge all their production. And then I also told them, I was like, look, you know, if you want to see what the economics look like from a gross perspective, like go to our website, go to the gas hash calculator and check it out. And while we're on the Zoom call with them, the guy's like pulling it up and running the numbers and I can just see the wheels start spinning in his brain. And um, I think it'll get there. I think that that's that orange pill moment. But all of these folks, especially in the oil and gas industry, are still pretty uncertain because the mainstream narrative around Bitcoin is that it is, it's volatile, it's risky. It's like, you know, Silk Road money. People still think that. <laughs> I know. It's nuts. I encounter it all the time. It's, it's right. It is what it is. I mean, it's, it, it's going to change very soon, I think, especially because of all this corporate adoption, you know, that's cool. happening that people start seeing it differently. It's not like a currency you need to transact out of quickly to lock in your exchange rate or whatever. It's, it's actually the best form of collateral you could possibly have on your balance sheet. You know, I think people are starting to see it more like that. But just the last point on that hedge, would it not be a better hedge for them if they weren't just uh, selling you guys power at a set rate, but they were actually, you know, accruing the benefit of accumulating Bitcoin and the price appreciation of Bitcoin? So in that type of a model, what like what role would you guys play? Would you guys be, you know, you provide the, the gear and you service and operate and that would be another aspect of what you guys do or? Yeah, it's more like an operating um, operating company at that point or like a vendor. So they have vendors that come in with these like liquids units that drop out liquids on sites and then, you know, tank them to a different market. And those get sold into a refinery to produce, you know, all kinds of different chemicals. Um, it'd be the same type of model, most likely, if they want to put up all the risk for the generation capital, for the container capital, for the miner capital, we could still come in and operate it. Um, but at the same time, like I said, nobody knows how to do this. Right. Right. And that's, that's yeah. our competitive advantage. Cause like, I can prove it. I can, I can export our database and like, just show a producer, like, here's what our uptime looks like. Take it or leave it. It's so fucking rad. I love it. Uh, yeah. well, man, you've been, uh, gracious with your time I, i'm hearing the hammer banging away in the factory there i'm sure you got lots <laughs> yeah, to, right? yeah. that you need to get back to so i'll let you go um anything you want to get out there before we shut it down i got nothing thanks for having me on all right brother have a good one cheers thanks john see ya